0: I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you for joining me. You can find more, including show notes, at christianchiller.com. Hello again. It's been a while. I needed a few months' break. I think uh, I think many of us did. And I wanted the opportunity to uh, relaunch the podcast. Strangely, kind of back more how it used to be. A, random kind of geeky squeak of things that took my interest and uh, things I've been up to and uh, things, things, things like that. So thank you again for joining me. It's good to be back. I hope you welcome me back too. And uh, it's time to get started. First, let's begin with birthday wishes. Happy 30th birthday to Linux, a side project that no one, including its creator, expected much of. And 30 years later, it is running a lot. Uh, it isn't on the desktop as much as everyone always expected and thought and hoped it would be, but it is certainly omnipresent uh, behind the scenes, if not in your face, at least. This was, of course, reported in many, many outlets, and um, there's not much more I can say that hasn't been said already. I did see a really nice post on ZDNet from as always Stephen J Vaughn's uh which had some really nice screenshots of uh variants of Linux throughout the the years. Um uh, many of which I think he had tried and used himself. And also reflections from mailing lists and and things like that. Uh and it's also it was really interesting to see when the scale kind of hits and it's sort of more recent than you may think i guess in the past 10 years is where things really ramp up in some respects with sort of containerization of infrastructure and in other respects with with android and i don't always know when it comes to analytics of usage of linux if the different use cases are separated out to know what actually has the most impact. Is it things like containers or is it things like Android? What actually has the biggest impact on those those numbers? I'm not completely sure. I, I guess I use Linux every day. I'm not running it for my own kind of machine, but uh, I do use it every day. Uh, and I have an Android phone, so I'm using it there, I suppose. But um, I did... I suppose in celebration, in an attempt to experiment again, I downloaded Kubuntu. Yes, I kind of like messing around with KDE. I don't know. It just appeals to me more. I like a nice GUI. (laughs) So I have that uh, running again, and I'll experiment some more. I think I'm especially interested in in seeing what kind of desktop software I can get up and started with. Actually, I, I have been experimenting... Um, my own little use case with a little bit more uh, and I'm working on a blog post covering what I have been doing the past few months with a Raspberry Pi. I have a Raspberry Pi 400 now set up at home serving as a kind of media center for various things including Nextcloud, Calibre ebook library, uh, mini DNLA for media library uh, and kind of an archive drive that I can access from multiple places. I'm just putting the finishing touches to a blog post about that. So you can look at my experiments with a certain flavor of Linux there. I think I've been experimenting with it for so long. Sometimes it was hard going back and, and revisiting what I'd already done because uh, sometimes you can't remember how you got to where you are now. But uh, you can look forward to that too. That will come up on christianchiller.com soon. Something related and I guess transitioning from... Linux as a, as a desktop operating system into where it is probably most widely utilized in the container ecosystem. This is actually another article from Stephen J. Vaughan uh, on ZDNet, but uh, I came across this myself as well. Um, as I put together, I'm now putting together a monthly newsletter for my employer, Chronosphere, uh, which is a monthly look back at things in observability and cloud native. You can also find links to that on christianchiller.com. But this is about eBPF. Uh, BPF is a kernel-level module, I suppose, in Linux that enables kind of hot-swapping, I suppose, of various features, meaning that you can add things into the kernel without having to recompile it. And this is especially useful for something like observability for um, monitoring what's going on in the kernel without having to keep recompiling every time you add a new, uh, I suppose, a new source, a new metric, and, and eBPF is is something explicitly around that sort of use case. And it's become so popular, actually, in the past year or so. It now has its own kind of spin-out website and now its own foundation. There's a couple of companies kind of with a vested interest in promoting eBPF, so I suppose uh, it thought it was a good tactic to get a foundation together, to have a more uh, diplomatic and neutral perspective on the development of the technology. In fact, uh, one of my old format, uh, version 1.0, I guess we could call it, interviews, I think back in February, was uh, with Nila Jacques of Isovalent talking about Cilium, which is actually one of the EBPF technologies. And before that, back in November last year, I spoke with the two founders behind Pixie, another eBPF technology which is now part of New Relic. So you can get some more background and context on the technology from those two episodes if, uh, if that interests you at all. Transitioning into something a little different here. This is an article on Wired from Alessandra Briganti from earlier in August about Serbia and its new smart city. Now, something I note, actually, so Belgrade is the capital of Serbia. It's one of my favourite cities in quote-unquote Europe. It's not in the European Union, but it's definitely in the European continent. But because it's not in the European Union, it has an interesting kind of relationship with various world powers, shall we say, and has attracted quite a lot of investment from Chinese companies as well as Arab countries. Uh, because it is on the traditional Silk Road. And China and certain parts of the Middle East are somewhat trying to recreate that. But there has been so much investment in in Serbia from China, I'm pretty sure I read something a few years ago, even to the point where when Chinese tourists were travelling to Europe, that's a strange phenomenon to think may never come back, there were so many on the streets there visiting, or business people I suppose as well, that the Chinese police were... Either, and this is where I can't remember the details, on the streets of Serbia or Belgrade or other cities, or training the police there. I can't quite remember. It's an important difference, but still kind of fascinating. And unsurprisingly, China has been heavily invested uh, from a technology perspective, but also a money and resources perspective, into Serbia's attempt to create smart cities, and this has caused some concern <laughs> at its proximity to Europe and thus European activists especially so. And I suppose the points of concern are around their technology partners who are Huawei and I do recall seeing quite a large Huawei building uh, on the banks of the river in uh, Belgrade a few years ago and there's obviously controversy around Huawei um, and some vagueness around the relationship between the deals that have been signed. And I suppose it's it's interesting here because some could argue that in a country where government is confused, corrupt, underfunded, whatever words you choose to use, maybe those points of vagueness or those deals are intentional. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's unintentional. Uh, it, it's really hard to say, and there's a lot of conjecture, of course. And there's been a lot of backtracking, and this has turned into a bit of a political hot potato between the two countries and the European Union, where now Serbia is somewhat kind of torn between the two of them, between its close political quote-unquote ally, neighbour, and its far away but heavily investing uh, Chinese friend, and who <laughs> to keep happy and who to annoy and who to take investment from. And this is an issue kind of in that whole region, but especially in Serbia. And I find it quite fascinating around that, that, that region, especially to know how this is all going to play out. And, and it, yeah, it's happening in Montenegro and in a few other countries too. And the European Union is, is kind of trying to keep them as a safe buffer state's but when it's, they're not members, so they're going to do so much, uh, well, how do they enforce these ideals and, and uh, what they want when not necessarily giving anything back? Uh, this kind of leads to a, a past debate where lots of those countries were attempting to join the European Union, and that has kind of gone a bit cold recently. And Is that a carrot dangle, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Anyway, we're getting somewhat into politics now, but... Um, I think it was interesting to see how China is kind of rolling out these technologies all over the place. And Africa is probably another uh, collection of countries to look at, uh, a continent to look at, where um, we're not entirely sure what these companies are collecting and doing. and Yeah, who knows? And they kind of possibly exploit some of these inadequacies in these countries, governments and infrastructure and oversight bodies to, well... So who knows what gain? And looking at this aspect of data from a different perspective uh, and kind of flipping it on its head, I suppose, this is another article from Wired from Chris Stokel-Walker back also around the middle of August. Um, obviously, Afghanistan has been big in the news, but this was uh, specifically looking at where a lot of Afghanis had worked with uh, the US and Allied forces. And fearing, with with good reason, as we sort of discovered in the weeks after that, that any information connecting them to working with the Allied forces would uh, not would be negatively viewed by the now Taliban authority, um, and just the extent that they had to go to in kind of. Uh, digital and non-digital data and destruction of and uh, those things are around social media posts and all this you know that there's 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 data that you kind of know you have access to or you have or you know what it is or there's one copy of it or something like that and then there's social media data that for various reasons is, is kind of hard to get rid of and there's archives of it and and uh, snapshots of it and, and things like that and and trying to get rid of it all when someone who is really motivated to find it can probably find it as well. Uh, and it might be on other devices. You know, Just because you get rid of it on your computer, for example, doesn't mean it's not somewhere else or someone else has another copy and et cetera, et cetera. And this kind of tangled web of trying to remove yourself from, from sources of data. And I think that somewhat ties into the previous uh, article I was mentioning, because yeah, you start to see these potential future unintended consequences of data being collected that you don't always know who by and where it's going and and when and why you might want to remove that. And of course, some could argue that there's sometimes good reasons for that. I mean, this is a, a case of people who and one perspective in history were working with people who were perceived to be doing a good thing and now they're perceived to be working with an opponent of a new government. And of course there's myriad perspectives on the right and wrong here, but you know, um, I suppose there's arguments to say that there's other cases where allowing people where it's more clear, more black and white to use a, a phrase Around good and bad. <laughs> Do you want people to be able to remove that data? I just, and this this obviously ties into news from Apple with the um the I think it's C C SPAN, is it? Um policies as well. Uh and the you know, there's a there's a mechanic there being used for quote unquote good. But what else could it mean in the future? And oof, yeah. And I feel like those sort of three new stories, I'm not really going into detail on the Apple one, but those three stories kind of taken together show you these different facets of what data collection can mean and how it can get so tangled around you without ever you expecting it to. <laughs> Food for thought. <laughs> Okay, let's, let's lighten up a bit. Let's, let's go into some kind of more general geekery. This is actually from a couple of years ago, May 2019, but just because I only just discovered the wonderful Increment magazine, which is published by Stripe, strangely, and they had an issue in 2019 on... This was an issue on open source and a wonderful article on LaTeX. One of the technologies a lot of people love to hate, and I kind of love it. I don't know why. I like its weird... Uh, esoteric syntax and this kind of very opinionated way it produces largely PDFs from markup uh, and yeah I, I tried to make a board game using it several years ago which was not something I'd do again but it was an interesting experiment anyway. Yeah it makes it roughly just over 40 years old which is quite amazing for a technology well that's from its origins to now anyway LaTeX itself and this is an article from uh, Purnima Apte talking about a history of LaTeX uh, from Donald Knuth and kind of how it got there, what it built upon and where it's going now. And it's still very, very active development. I think that makes it. Let me just have a quick read and tot up the dates it was around the 80s at some point. I was kind of trying to figure the dates out a little bit. Um, But it also actually helped tech, which is what it built upon. And just to clarify to anyone who isn't familiar with these words, this is L-A-T-E-X. So a lot of people may mispronounce it as latex or latex or whatever, but it's actually latex, and then tex is tech. It's slightly confusing. Um, But that was a uh, a kind of underpinning that wasn't so well known, it wasn't so popular, and latex kind of produced a more user-friendly way user-friendly in 80s computing style anyway anyone looking at it now would think what on earth is this but user-friendly for the time shall we say and of course it was something of a competitor to uh, adobe creating similar-ish in a different way tools for for output as well and it's always been wonderful for documents that involve a lot of um, mathematical syntax and formula and things like that um But I also find it great as a cross-platform way of creating PDFs, of creating consistent, reliable PDFs that are well-formatted and well-structured. I actually hit this time and time again, especially on kind of marketing-style PDFs, where they have no table of contents, no clickable links, and kind of, you know, PDF is supposed to be a standard, but not all PDFs are created equal, shall we say, (laughs) and some are pretty bad, and you get kind of text PDFs that, not really text and, and all these sorts of things. And I find it um, sometimes uh, yeah, frustrating. And you kind of just wish everyone would use LaTeX or, or something nice like that. <laughs> but anyway, take a read, have a look at the link, and uh, yeah, take a trip down memory lane with me to a wonderful piece of technology that's still with us today. And another technology post just to throw in before I move on is from Ron Amadeo on Ars Technica. A highly, well, not highly detailed, but a fairly detailed overview as we find ourselves on the cusp of another Google Messenger platform in the form of RCS, which from reading this is not as uh, new as Google may like to, uh, to imply a wander down historical archives and um, trash cans of history of Google's various attempts at messaging platforms. And actually, I'd forgotten about some of (laughs) these. It's quite wonderful. You know, it's been a running joke, and sometimes you forget how many there were. And not only that, but how many options for messaging there were in other products. This seemed to be a thing that Google went through for a period of time, is adding messaging to everything without even really thinking about it and the mistakes they have made over and over again. And I always love looking at this from an American perspective because I find in Europe no one really cares about SMS. And in America they do. And it always seems to be people talking about iMessage, but most people I know use Telegram or WhatsApp. Uh, That may be because I don't have an iPhone. But even those who do, they tend to still use WhatsApp. It's so kind of ubiquitous along with Telegram kind of rapidly biting its heels here and and signal at its heels that um, we don't even really think about these other options. But uh, yeah, uh, if you want some reminding and some wonderful screenshots of what things used to look like, you know, near 10 years ago, uh, then have a look at this post and and (laughs) then cry, uh, remorse, celebrate uh, what is and what isn't with us anymore in the world of Google messaging. And finally, an article from Aeon magazine, from Erika uh, um Why, let me get the title here because it's a nice title. It's called Typos, Tricks and Misprints. Why is English spelling so weird and unpredictable? And I, I... I I really love digging into this kind of stuff. I've been spending a lot of the past year working my way through the very epic History of the English Language podcast, which started in 2012. And I think I'm currently up to episodes from about 2015, so I have a long way to go yet. It's a very detailed look at the language and actually fills in a lot of the background and history uh, to this post. And, and TLDR, It's a lot of it's because of the influences on the language, from French and uh, uh, Scandinavian languages and Germanic languages and Latin languages and all these various inputs that kind of create this wonderful mishmash of nonsense and inconsistencies. But then also, which I found quite fascinating, some of it comes from typesetting. When English uh, went to being typeset and printed and that certain letters weren't available or weren't so common and they would buy printers from Germany and things like that, so it actually kind of changed bits of spelling to make printing easier, which is wonderful. And you kind of see similar things happening now with abbreviations, with emojis, because that is the format we now have available to us. So when people say, you know, uh, messaging systems are are ruining the English language, you can kind of say, well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the type press was there first, buddy. And, uh, you know, technology has a way of always evolving and changing things. And some would say ruining, some would say improving, others would just say changing and evolving. But, uh, you know, there's always reasons behind things. And sometimes I find this sort of entomology histories, I, I don't know, I, I love it. I, I love understanding the meanings of words and and uh, sometimes they're quite wonderful and sometimes they have such historical context and yeah, it's just a, <laughs> a a wonderful sort of trip down some of the justification for that. And then go and have a listen to the History of the English podcast if you've got a spare 10 years. And he, he's very, very regular. Still going as well uh, to get a bit more, well a lot more depth around the subject as well. So that was my, my links that I wanted to discuss in this episode. And for me, I have been on a holiday for a couple of weeks. So I've actually got quite a bit that uh, I feel like I was telling you I was working on lots of things several months ago on the last episodes, but then who knows what they were such a long time ago. I'm just going to start afresh. So I've been working on my novel that's coming along. I think I'm about 60 to 70% through my first draft. <laughs> Maybe I should do a summation of it at some point soon. And I have a couple of blog posts that have come out for various clients you can find on my website. Also uh, some experiments with uh, Nextcloud, kind of a tangent from the what I was mentioning earlier and I actually have a big post that will be coming out next uh, week, I think about the 7th of September on uh, that. Actually, no, that's going to be on my streaming setup. That will be coming out in two weeks. I have a post on my streaming setup coming out next week. My podcasting, my video production and streaming setup will be out next week a blog post and then a video to follow. And then in two weeks' time will be the the Raspberry Pi setup post. But I have a post and a video coming out, I think, tomorrow, I'd say Thursday, actually it might be the same day as this uh, podcast episode, going through me then experimenting with taking uh, NextCloud to uh, Kubernetes to, to a public cloud using Service Mesh and Ingress and things like that um i've actually been doing a lot of editing of some posts as well i've got a new interactive fiction um game i don't really know what to call it you can find it on my website a link on my website and my itch page which is europop vampire you might enjoy that and a couple of other games i've been working at uh, through lockdown actually you can find that on my games page i also have a new support page so if you like what i do what you hear what you see on various things and yeah I've been very very busy on my YouTube channel you can find all sorts of videos from gaming to tech there as well probably more regular than, than this show actually you can find all the details on my website christianchiller.com as well so please uh, if you if you enjoy what you hear subscribe tell a friend leave a comment wherever you hear always appreciated and uh, drop a small donation through the ways you can find or buy a little bit of merchandise I have T-shirts and all sorts of things um, if you enjoy it. Uh, You can also sign up for the newsletter version, which will be coming back at the same time as this, uh, if you prefer to read instead of listen. But uh, I don't know why you'd want to do that. And, uh, yeah, it's good to be back. And I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you all come back to listen next time and, indeed, this time. And, uh, yeah, I will see you again soon for another Chinchilla Squints. Ich würde schon